This is an AMI podcast. I'm Juwita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Grief is a universal emotion. At some point and in some way, we have or will all experience grief. Grief comes in many shapes. Grief can both be an expression of personal loss or a collective experience. It's possible to grieve or mourn an entire way of life. For people with disabilities, grief can come from many places. There can be grief associated with an impairment or even grief associated with the lost opportunities. But where there is grief, there is also hope and resilience. There are many prevailing ideas on what to do with grief. Grief is to be endured, overcome, or accepted. Today, we discuss the memoir, How to Lose Everything, with author Krista Couture. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joita Gupta and I'm the host of the program. It's really good to be with you today and I hope that as we get to the one-year anniversary of the of the World Health Organization declaring COVID-19 a pandemic, that we're all taking time to reflect on what has been an extremely strange year, but also to look forward. There are so many things to be optimistic about. Uh, the vaccine rollout in many parts of the country is now underway. Uh, more and more Canadians are getting the jab. And so those are all really good things to consider. One of the things I will try to do for future episodes is bring somebody on a virologist or a vaccinologist and, you know, have some of uh, and try and have some of your common questions answered. But that's for future. For now, back in September, Krista Couture, who is a well known on this on this channel, wrote a memoir, How to Lose Everything. And at that time, uh, I spoke to Krista and we agreed that maybe we'd hold off on our conversation just a little bit longer because Krista is now putting out the audiobook version of her memoir in the spring around now. And so I'm very pleased to welcome to The Pulse, not for the first time, Krista Couture. Hi, Krista. It's so good to have you on the program again. Hi, Joita. It's great to be chatting with you again. It feels like forever. I know it hasn't ne- nearly been all quite that long, but uh, how are you doing? I mean, how are you holding up during the pandemic? I'm what a friend of mine called pandemic fine, and it, it always has been making sense in that, you know, knock on wood, I'm safe and sound, and, you know, I still have, like, I'm employed, I have, fi- like, I'm financially stable, I've been healthy, I'm, I'm, and those things are always a privilege mm-hmm. <laughs> and always a blessing, And but it feels like in the last year... Um, more so than ever. So yeah, holding up okay, except it's also strange and stressful and all of that. <laughs> um, and in the middle of all of that, you put out your memoir, How to Lose Everything. It came out last September. Tell me a little bit about how you see the memoir and what you think the memoir can do for people. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I first started writing it, I did not anticipate it would be coming out in a year of of so much collective grief and in a way that we're all experiencing some very similar losses, loss of potential, loss of our plans, loss of a sense of safety. Um, I think we've been united in those, those kinds of loss. 
Um, whereas the book, it's it's a book that in each chapter focuses on a different kind of grief and a different kind of loss that I've had. I sometimes talk about my grief bio, which is um, cancer, amputation, death, death, divorce, more cancer. That's what, that's the bullet points. Um, and so, you know, uh, as a list, it's extraordinary. But I, what I do through the book is, is kind of dive into each of those experiences and what I learned from them and how I saw them at the time, in part, you know, to to illuminate what these experiences might be like for people who are curious about them, but also to kind of, you know, say, like, I see you, I get you. If you are right now in that difficult terrain of grief um here is here's what i've learned here are my field notes from from that terrain and so wanting to just let people know they're not alone mm-hmm. when you were writing your memoir revisiting your grief biography were there parts of the writing process that you might have struggled with because it must have been hard to bring up all of those turbulent emotions and to think about all of the loss and the grief that you had undergone in your life, was there a moment where you were like, where you really felt stuck or struggled? Yes. I would say that I couldn't have written this book any sooner in my life. I had to be at a place where it was firmly in the past, where the events in this book are behind me and that I could look back at them. You know, I think in grief, in particular, um, you know, in the book, I talk about the deaths of, of my two sons. I mean, those are, mm-hmm. they're kind of the everything. There's these other losses, but they're, for me, the biggest and the most present. And and in grief, you know, you you, you fall in pieces. And writing a book is, is a very literal task of putting pieces together, you know, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and, and connecting threads so that it makes sense. So I needed to be able to be in a place where I wasn't, still falling apart (laughs) um but that said there were times that I would be writing and I think okay today I'm gonna you know I know I'm gonna write about this moment in time and I would I would have a plan in place you know um being being ready for the emotion to come being open to it knowing that I can stop and look away and look out the window and remind myself you know this is the year and the date what I'm writing about is in the past and 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 just be gentle with myself. I mean, I also made very clear decisions about what to include and not to include. There was sort of this balance of wanting to write something that was vulnerable, wanting to write something that was genuine, and only only doing that within my, my comfort zone. So if I felt like I was bumping into something that might be, like, re-traumatizing, <laughs> I didn't go there, you know, and I, I'm grateful to kind of years of therapy and mindfulness practices and all of these these tools I've I've been very lucky to access and resources that I've been lucky to build um, that that put me in a place where I was prepared to do that and that I knew how to recognize okay that's going to be too much for me or this is I feel sad but I'm okay you know so there was kind Mm -hmm. of just checking in with myself having a plan and then seeing what comes. Some people say that writing about the events that cause you grief can be cathartic. Did you find that it was cathartic or were the events that you were writing about now so far in the in, in the distant past that you didn't really feel that writing served a cathartic function? It was more a, a, almost a, a record-keeping function. That's interesting. I, I For me, I find it's a bit of 
both. I think when I, for me, when I create work in writing nonfiction or in the music that I write, when it feels cathartic, that's probably work that I'm not going to make public. <laughs> like, I feel mm. like the cathartic writing I do is like, that's when you're journaling. Like, that's when you're like getting it out there and you're, 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 you don't know what you're saying or thinking. You're just trying to find your way through. And so that's such an important part in a creative process. You have to kind of muddle through and dig through the emotion. And then the work that I do when it came to writing this memoir was the crafting you know, was kind mm-hmm. of on on the other side or just near the tail end of that cathartic process saying, okay, what of this would I craft into a book, into something I want to share, into something that, you know, hopefully is artful and, and you know, is made public. Um, so I, I see it as kind of a blend. I do think there was something very empowering about writing it in that, mm-hmm. I think any time that we decide what our story is, <laughs> when we decide and we say this is who I am, this is what's important to me, we're we're kind of taking control of that of our own story and our narrative, and we mm-hmm. can decide, you know, what those what those words are. And I got to do that, and so and I think in that sense, that's maybe not part of catharsis, but there was something, you know, almost healing or or empowering in in getting to go through that process. Mm-hmm. The other reason why a lot of people write a memoir, and I'm thinking especially about a certain type of memoir, which is, you know, the slave narratives that people write, is a way to kind of convince people or move people to change um, or to act on something by relating a personal story in such a way that it seems to resonate as a collective story, you know, like the Harriet Tubman or Frederick Douglass are, are writing about individual experiences, but they're also writing about that bigger experience of slavery. In your writing of your memoir, was there a component in which it wasn't just that you were writing about what happened to Krista, but you were writing a bigger story or trying to tell a bigger story about a group of people whose voices may not be heard as often or as loudly as some others? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I feel like with this book, you know, the, the, the short summary is that grief bio is about these experiences of loss. But what's woven throughout the book as well are my experiences as a disabled person, as an indigenous person, as a queer person. And the book isn't, you know, about those experiences directly. But what I, you know, did very intentionally was include them so that you would have a sense of kind of the 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 vast <laughs> diversity among those experiences i think every time we hear you know and meet another disabled person we go oh I'm, i've learned more about the differences in this world there's so many stereotypes to break down right mm-hmm. <laughs> as we both know and and i think every time that our stories are told there's that sense of yeah the bigger picture of contributing to a larger narrative absolutely but, you know, there is a lot that's written about people with disabilities. Most medical journals like to postulate about people with disabilities. Government reports like to get into talking about people with disabilities, rehabilitation manuals. I mean, there is a copious amount of writing that happens about people with disabilities uh, that treat disability as a condition. Do you feel that there was some value in the work that you did as a memoir writer? that gives life to the internal voice of people with disabilities, that people with disabilities aren't 
just grieving a disability or may not even want to grieve a disability per se, but may have other aspects of loss in their lives as disabled people that taps into common humanity. I mean, a divorce, um, and dare I say it, even losing children, these are expressions of grief that I think everyone can relate to, even if they don't self-identify as people with disabilities. So is there a, a way in which you're trying to tap a common humanity? I hope so. I hope that that's there, you know, because we are human. <laughs> and I think that's why for me, it being sort of, I mean, there's a couple explicit chapters where I talk about, I mean, my disability was acquired. I had bone cancer when I was a kid and my leg was amputated when I was 13. And so I talk about those experiences and I, I try to describe that while, you know, yes, there was a, a loss at that time. I mean, for me, the amputation of my leg was also the cure for my cancer. I'm incredibly lucky that there was a cure and you know there was a transition period but this is a part of myself that I love you know this is a part of my story even though I went through like some grieving I'm I'm now at this point in my life and I can celebrate Mm -hmm. my disability and I I hope that the way that it's woven in you know not being too like on the nose does contribute to that that, (laughs) you know opening up of, of seeing us as fundamentally human I mean it was interesting there's a scene in the book like just in passing where I talk about this doctor I went to who I had a crush on (laughs) and um, I like to you know describe him and the interaction and and then I say you know as the scene is ending I say he pushed his wheelchair back and it was time for me to go and there was one editor along the way who was editing the manuscript who like flagged it and was like, do you mean wheelchair? I mean, do you mean a wheeled chair? Like, why was he in a wheelchair? We don't know this about him. Like, why would you say that? And I was like, because he was, I don't know why he was in a wheelchair. Like, like, um, and it, you know, he also had brown mm-hmm. hair. Like this is just a, a detail about him that I knew from our very limited interactions when I was a patient. And it, but for me, it was very telling that she kind of got her back up about this mm-hmm. because I wished that it, it, I wish that it was, you know, among the other details of describing him. This is just something about him. This is one part of who he was. And mm-hmm. really who I described him in that scene as kind and, and, and generous. And I, he made a difference in my life. And so um, that was it, it, just when I had the interaction, I was like, oh, I wonder how this one little sentence is going to land differently for people because it, it, it kind of startled her where some other people have said, Oh, I love how you just mentioned like he's in a wheelchair, like no big deal. And I was like, Mm -hmm. because in that story, it was no big deal. It was not a story about why (laughs) someone could write that story if he wants to write that story. But Mm -hmm. um, so if, yeah, I find it fascinating the ways that people want a disabled story to look like or expect it to be. And then ultimately challenging those, those reactions, I think, um, is part of that, that work of, of humanizing. I'm Juwita Gupta, and with me is the author of a memoir, How to Lose Everything. I'm speaking to Krista Couture. Krista, the book is now out. It's been out for several months. Tell me a little bit about the reception. I mean, what have people said to you about the book now that it's out in the world? Oh, gosh, the response has been wonderful. I mean, it came out, yeah, in Canada in September. It came out in the States just March 9th. Um, and so there should be some new new responses happening there. And the audiobook, um, as, as you mentioned, is coming out soon. I, I love the responses. I, I am so moved 
by the fact that people take time <laughs> to send me a note, you know, an email or Instagram or, you know, whatever, tagging something on Twitter to to say how it moved them, to say what they learned from it, to share their own stories. Like, just mm-hmm. it's so generous that people respond and say, well, this is what happened to me and this is how, you know, I see it and, and this is how it was different for me or this is how I can relate and I love that part. I love that part of making work. I mean, I was a touring musician for so many years, and mm-hmm. honestly, my favorite part would be after the show and just getting to talk to people. And and I, I, you know, it's, it's, this is the pan year of the pandemic, so I didn't get to bring my my book in person to places. And I, I wish I could have had that moment of you know hugging it out or looking people in the eye. Um, but but the fact that people spend time to to respond is is so meaningful. Yeah, that's right. You wouldn't have had a chance to do the the traditional book tour. How did you no. uh, publicize the book? Did you do virtual events? Uh, what what was the plan? There's been lots of virtual events. My publisher, Douglas and McIntyre, is wonderful. And I was booked into a number of like literary festivals that were happening online in the fall. Mm-hmm. So a few different panels with other authors and on different subjects, a few one-on-one interviews. Um, I had a virtual launch party where some people performed music, and I did a you know Q and A conversation with uh, journalist Hannah Sung. And now that there's you know the the U.S. release and and the audiobook coming up, there's a little flurry again of you know getting to talk to you and getting to talk to some podcasts, and and so it's just a matter of of hitting the streets digitally, you know, like finding those events finding those podcasts. Um, so in some ways, it's kind of the, the same hustle when it comes to marketing and publicity. It's just that um, I'm not leaving the house. <laughs> yeah, how do you find that? Do you, do, you, do you actually think this is a good way for people with disabilities who are artists to put their work out there to try and do as much virtually? Because there are often barriers to people with disabilities, accessing venues, even a travel can be very strenuous on people. Do you think that this pivot towards all things virtual has been a good thing, a bad thing? Or do you have mixed feelings when it comes to the opportunities or lack of opportunities for people with disabilities? I mean, I have mixed feelings in that. I long for in-person interaction, but that said, I long for accessible <laughs> in-person interaction for all, you know, um, whatever that, that means, because there are so many barriers. Um, and, and I have, you know, it's been, it's been wonderful to see people adapt and recognize that work can be done virtually. I mean, I feel like there was certainly at the beginning of the pandemic, I felt like there was a lot of conversations from the disability community saying like, yeah, we've been asking for this forever. <laughs> like we've been saying we can work from home. Hello. Um, and a kind of, you know, in a way it was disheartening that there was this, this immediate reaction to get people mm-hmm. set up at home and make virtual events possible when that should have been done a, a long time ago um, and always been an option. And so it's this mix. Like, I'm glad the technology is there. I'm glad more and more people are familiar with doing things virtually and online and that that can bring more people into um, into those events um, and that we've learned we can enjoy them and we can learn that there's still, like, strengths and benefits to, to doing that. And so I think there's a lovely democratization of that that's happened. And I miss doing things in person. <laughs> uh, so tell me a bit about the audiobook. When is that coming out? 
I don't have the exact date where are we now. We're beginning of March, when, right today we're talking. So I'm hoping it's by the end of this month. I'm waiting for an update from my my publisher. I I loved recording the audiobook. I got to do that myself. And actually, you know, a couple of years ago when my literary agent was shopping the you know the proposal to different publishers, I was I was for me it was like a breaking you know a deal breaker that I would be the one doing the audiobook. I didn't want anyone else doing it. <laughs> and so um, I was really glad that I got do it it was emotional of course to sit and read these stories out loud I felt really good to read them kind of like I was saying it's empowering to write your own story and then to to read it to share it to speak it in my voice also felt um, important and I can't wait for it to be available because I know people are waiting waiting for that format and uh, I'll, I'll be so thrilled to be in people's ears and and see what they think a lot of what you've said throughout our conversation today is this um, is this idea of community and relationships really anchoring you as a, as a performer, but also as a person. When you reflect on your journey with grief, what is the role of relationships and community in your journey? What different, I mean, it, it's helpful to have people around you when you're grieving, but does it go beyond that? I think in this life, relationship is everything, you know, and... I was able to write this book. I've been able to, you know, I wouldn't say I don't, I've been able to get to this point in my life because of the community around me. I've been very, very lucky and privileged that there was people who would literally, you know, pick me up. People have taken care of me. People have fed me. And not everyone has that. And I was, I'm, you know, really lucky to have that, really lucky to be resourced for therapy and all these other things that helped me too. But there's so much to relationship and to to seeing ourselves in each other and I think there was so much in my you know journey as I say with grief that came down to finding representation I mean god representation always matters so much in all these areas but finding other stories like mine or other stories about grief and and knowing that I wasn't alone I mean I as I said, I wrote this book partially as an offering to others to say, you're not alone. But that's because I received that <laughs> that gift um, from other people, from other books, from other artists, from friends. And so even though, you know, the concept, we know we're not alone and that our human experiences were, you know, specks of dust. But at the same time, when we're in it, when we're in, you know, the middle of something, it can feel like it's just us. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, relationships is everything. What about your your music? I remember talking to you about, um, I want to say it's your third album. Um, and, you know, in that previous conversation that took place many years ago, you said, you know, the first two I was really sort of working, I think what you said was the first three was really working through my grief. And this third one is a little bit more upbeat and it's the kind of album you should throw on if you're cleaning the house. Um, tell me a little bit about the role of, of music in your life. I mean, how has that helped you process the grief that you've dealt with? Yeah, I feel very fortunate that I have music in my life. I mean, I guess if I were a gardener, I probably would have just been digging in dirt the whole time. You know, if I were a cook, I'd be in the kitchen. Like, I, music is, is my thing, and it's the thing I, I go to to express myself, to have fun. Um, and so music has been a big part of, of the catharsis and the crafting. 
um, I also last year in in at the start of the pandemic released what is actually my seventh recording, which is called Safe Harbor, and was about feeling safe and about being in a place in my life that was stable. Again, not realizing it would come out <laughs> during the pandemic. Um, but um, yeah, music and music is in the in the book. I talk about the different songs I wrote at different times. I include lyrics in almost every chapter because there's some experiences that I don't think I could say in any other way other than through music. And so I include that. Um, and there's a playlist you can find on Spotify and on my website of all the songs that I mentioned in the book because they're, they're so intertwined. And the stories I tell in the book are stories I have been sharing in a way in music. Um, so yeah, it's always been connected to, connected to it. I guess the million dollar question and the one that I'll leave you with is what does one do with grief? So in the monologue, I said, you know, some people think grief is something to be endured. You know, you, you, you do your grieving and then you move on. Some people say it has to be overcome that you kind of box it away. Other people feel you have to accept it as a part of life. I would love to hear after all of the grieving that you've done and all of the coping that you've done and all of the healing that you've done. What is the role of grief in all of our lives? What is its place in our collective thinking about grief? Hmm. You know, the very last section of the book is called How to Lose Everything, A Field Guide, and I, I try to answer that. You know, I think grief, there are types of grief that will run, you know, their course, and there are types of grief that will never leave us. And it's such a, I mean, in many ways, it's a very rich part of our our existence. You know, I think we... Of course, we want to just have the good vibes only and, and the positive <laughs> emotions. Um, but really, when we open ourselves up to the breadth of this human existence, we we get to more fully live it. We get to more fully experience it, even when it's messy, even when it's painful. And I think trying to avoid that or deny it is, is doing a disservice um, to to what's available to us. And so... I think grief is proof of love. You know, I think it's, it can be a friend. You know, I think it's a, a part of our, ourselves that is, while, you know, there's sorrow, there's also a real compassion and a depth of, of, of love and even a connection to joy, I think, that's in grief. So I think when we keep that in mind, it's easier to, to welcome it. That was really well said. Krista, thank you very much for being on the program. It was so great to speak to you again. Stay safe. Thank you. That was Krista Couture, who is the author of the memoir, How to Lose Everything, which will be coming out hopefully as an audiobook by the end of the month. You can find the book as an ebook wherever you get your ebooks, pretty much, be it Amazon or the Apple Bookstore. Uh, it is a, a really engrossing read, and I would highly recommend it. If you missed any of my conversation with Krista, you can find the podcast for The Pulse on your favorite podcast platforms. And while you're there, don't forget to like, rate, or subscribe. And please do skip on over to ami.ca forward slash on The Pulse. I will probably have a few more things to say. Uh, we always tend to run out of time at the program, so I like to go to the blog and put a couple of additional thoughts down there. You're welcome to go and catch the blog. I'd like to thank Krista Couture for being my guest on the program. Our technical producer for The Pulse is Nisreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio, and Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening. Stay safe, everyone, and have a wonderful rest of your day.
This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.